1: From Bloomberg News and iHeartRadio, it's The Big Take. I'm Wes Kosova. Each weekday, we dig into one important story, and today, Egypt. It's hosting this year's UN Climate Summit. And rising temperatures there show what'll happen everywhere if we don't get serious about global warming. leaders around the globe getting together starting November 6th for the annual UN climate change conference. It's known this year as COP27 because it's the 27th one since the first one back in 1995. The idea of course to try to slow the warming of the world. And that is a tall challenge at the moment with inflation and energy prices soaring some countries are putting climate promises on hold and leaning back into dirty fuel like coal and gas. One of the countries hardest hit by rising temperatures is Egypt. It's getting hotter at twice the pace of some other nations. My colleague Laura Milan in Madrid joins me now. She writes about climate and she's covering the conference. Laura, thanks for
2: being here. Thanks so much for having me.
1: Can you give us just a little refresher course, exactly what is COP and what are they going to try to accomplish there?
2: COP27 is the most important climate gathering of the year. It's sponsored by the United Nations. And during this meeting, climate negotiators from all the countries in the world meet the ultimate goal for all of them is to avoid catastrophic climate change. So at the moment, the planet is warming at a very fast pace. And if it continues like that, At the end of the century, we will have reached a level of warming of 3 degrees Celsius compared to pre-industrial times. So that will make some parts of the world unlivable. The mission of these negotiators is to find measures to cut greenhouse gas emissions in order to lower the level of warming.
1: So in 2015, when the Paris Climate Treaty was signed, which set big ambitious goals for all the world to follow, to do exactly what you're saying, and slow the rate of climate change, they set this goal of two degrees Celsius. They were going to try to keep the warming to that rate. And yet, we're seeing it kind of creep above that already in some countries. Is it cynical of me to ask, every year they come together... Politicians and scientists and activists all have this conversation. It's all very serious, and they come forward with pledges that they sign, and there's big photos taken, and
2: not a lot really happens after that. Well, that's one way to see it. Science tells us that warming below two degrees Celsius by the end of the century is possible if we cut emissions fast. Science also tells us that we have the technologies we need to lower the level of warming.
1: And what would some of those be, those technologies that exist if we would just use them?
2: Things that we are all familiar with today, like renewable energy, like better insulation of homes or electric vehicles, all those sorts of things would help us lower emissions a long way. All these talks help. You have to imagine it in a way you can imagine like COP is the top of a very long process. And at the end of that process are things like, for example, if you get in your country tax rebates for buying an e-bike or an electric vehicle, it all starts at COP. These big, big objectives are set at the COP meetings every year.
0: We all must speed up our race to net zero. The United States is not only back at the table, but hopefully leading by the power of our example. France, but more broadly the European Union, as well as the United
1: Kingdom are today uh, ready to meet their commitment.
0: India is the only big economy in the world that has delivered both in letter and spirit on its Paris commitments.
1: Last year, the COP climate was in in Glasgow. And at the end of it, the big goal that they set there was each country was going to go home and do some homework. They were going to set new goals for each of their countries on what they could do to limit the, you know, increase in the Earth's temperature. Coming in to COP27, have those countries actually all submitted those plans?
2: No, they haven't. Between COP26 last year and COP27 this year, a lot has happened in the world.
1: I mean, let's just name them. We have Russia invading Ukraine, which has put a huge pressure on energy and caused energy spikes, we've had huge heat spikes. What else?
2: We've got food shortages, we've got inflation. So governments across the world have been super busy trying to deal with the immediate problems. Maybe they haven't been as busy thinking about the problems of what happens at the end of the century or in 10, 20, 50 years' time. So that's part of the reason why many of them haven't submitted new climate plans. Also, the language for the decision at COP26 was a bit vague. It wasn't super clear that every country in the world had to submit new targets.
1: So given what you just said, does it seem to you as someone who covers this all the time that climate is always this very urgent, important thing until anything else happens. And then it's one of the first things to be kind of pushed aside for more immediate concerns. And everybody says, well, yeah, it's important, but we had to deal with this first.
2: I think it used to be like that, but it isn't like that anymore. There is a tendency to do that when you have the immediate war in Ukraine, the risk of blackouts in Europe this winter. But it's also true that because the world is warming at such a fast pace, We are seeing already the effects of climate change in the form of extreme weather events everywhere right now. So this is forcing politicians who might have the temptation to just walk away from this and focus on the problems of today. It's forcing them to realize that climate change is actually a problem of today.
1: And one of the places where we are seeing the real results of climate change right now is Egypt where this year's conference is being held. And I mean, I guess you could say that Egypt is sort of the case study of what happens if the world doesn't get serious about climate change. Can you describe what is happening with Egypt and why it's become such an urgent problem there?
2: Egypt is a country that's already 95% covered by desert. The part that's not covered by desert is uh, the Nile River uh, flows from the Nile River are diminishing because it's raining less upstream and also because countries like Ethiopia, well, Ethiopia basically is building a giant dam upstream, the Nile. So that means less water for Egypt. At the same time, Egypt is being impacted by sea level rise from the Mediterranean, which is flooding the Delta and wrecking crops from cotton to all sorts of of grains essential to feed Egypt, basically. Because the country is desert itself, a lot of it, it's affected by increasing heat, especially in cities, which are becoming bigger because uh, life in the countryside is becoming difficult.
1: What we're seeing in Egypt is that it is warming at twice the rate of the rest of the planet?
2: Yes, so we know that Egypt is warming about twice as fast as the rest of the planet, and we know that if uh, temperatures keep increasing globally at this pace. Some parts of Egypt will see temperatures as high as 50 degrees Celsius, for example, during heat waves. We know the average temperature in the country will rise by almost five degrees. This will mean that life in many places in Egypt will become almost impossible or really challenging.
1: So I should say for those uh, people listening in the US, if we're talking about two degrees Celsius, what we're talking about is 3.6 degrees in Fahrenheit. And so if we're looking at the potential for five degrees Celsius increase, that's nine degrees Fahrenheit. So a a very large leap and uh, one that would have absolutely devastating effects. What do you think, given all of this, we can expect from the COP27 conference? What are the goals that they're trying to accomplish?
2: So this COP27 will not end with one big agreement like we saw in Paris in 2015, for example. What the organisers are saying is that this is an implementation COP. What that means is that all the agreements that have been signed over the years, they need to advance. They want to make sure all these little agreements or big agreements that have been signed through the years advance. We will not have possibly a big headline coming out from COP but it also means that implementation, that the, actually how this becomes a reality will advance. And this is actually the, almost as important as one big headline statement.
1: My conversation with Laura will continue, but first I'd like to bring in my colleague Salma al Wardani for a view from Egypt. That's just after the break. We're going to continue our conversation now with Selma Wardani, energy reporter based in Cairo. Selma, we've been hearing all about how politicians are talking at a very high level about what nations can do working together to slow climate change. You've gone out into Egypt where the COP27 conference is being held to talk to people who are experiencing it right now. And Egypt, which is warming faster than the rest of the planet, uh, is seeing the effects that everyone is talking about in these rooms uh, in their everyday lives. Can you tell us what you saw and what people told you?
3: So farmers, especially in the area where I, I did my story and where most of Egypt's food production and agriculture has been and has been historically, that's the Delta Egypt. Farmers have lived their whole lives and the lives of the grand grandparents on these lands. And now the Nile is shrinking and the water doesn't reach them anymore. Especially in the case of of Baltim, the village where my story is, that's the top point in the Delta Strip, which means that it's almost touching the Mediterranean Sea, which also means that it's vulnerable to the soil salinization because of the rise of the sea levels.
1: Selma, you spoke to one farmer, and let's hear just a bit of what he
4: said. The water quality is not helping, and it's affecting the soil. I can't give it enough water, so it affects the crops, rice, cotton, and all produce. In the past, we could farm with less water. It was good water. It was 100% fresh Nile water. Now we're drinking treated wastewater. In this whole area of around 5,000 fiddans, everyone's drinking wastewater, not fresh water. We've been suffering from this water for more than 20 years.
3: So, yes, this is one of the farmers that I spoke with during my, my trip. His name is Shukri Muhammad Abdel And what he's talking about is a very, is an everyday problem. And it's not just related to agriculture. It's actually related like what he's saying to even like the drinking water the consumption of water so well team is on the last line of it's it's part of delta but it's it's pouring into the mediterranean so there's there's actually a beach there and uh, but at the same time there are farmers the main the main activity is farming there and because it's very close to the the, the mediterranean the water is very salty and the soil is very salty and there's very scarce water resources, whether it's for irrigation or for consumption, and it's not fit for human consumption. For it to be, to be fit for consumption even, they have to do a lot of treatment and which they, not all of them can necessarily afford.
1: And one of the big problems seems to be is salinization, that the water is becoming just extremely salty.
3: Yes, correct. And for that, it means the water, unlike other places, maybe in Egypt, the water is very, very high in salt, which means it needs a lot of treatment and it needs a lot of uh, chemicals to, you know, to, to make it barely, you know, fit for agriculture, let alone drinking.
1: Now you uh, spoke to the same farmer's son, who is also working the land, and he talked about this problem with uh, salt, which is essentially poisoning the water
4: and making it unfit. The salinization is what's harming us the most. It makes us want to leave here and go farm elsewhere, like in the desert, where there aren't high salt levels. Here, the salt concentration is high, both in the soil and in the water. This farming water, as you can see here, is not fit for irrigation or agriculture.
1: When you were there, were you able to see salt uh, just sitting on uh, on top of the land that had uh, essentially been left from the water?
3: Yes, I. it was very, very visible. You can see the white crust all over the, the crops it's 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 very alarming to see and and it's even for them like for the farmers there even for them it's it's like a new phenomena um, and that's after they spent you know their very little savings and their very little money they spent a lot of money uh, on on treatment and and you know and getting the water almost look like you know fresh water that you would use for irrigation. I mean.
4: We take matters into our own hands. Our group of farmers living around this irrigation canal collect money from each other, clean the canal and remove the drainage from it. Then we use the water to grow our crops. Do people like
1: him have faith uh, in the Egyptian government to address this? Obviously, the country is suffering quite a bit.
3: So in Egypt, unauthorized, you have to get an, an, uh, an authorization to be able to protest. And at the same time, especially in marginalized areas like Baltim. Baltim is, like I said, the furthest point of the Delta Line. So the services is not as good as further down on the Delta Line. So these people, they lack government services. And the government at the same time is railing from the effect of the war in Ukraine and before that the pandemic and there's not enough finances and that's why you see, you hear all the time the calls to get finances and for even farmers that I spoke to in this very distant village they were saying they they hope that COP27 they'll be able to get like finance and funding for the lands because they need it and because the government cannot afford that
1: So even these farmers who live far away from where government leaders around the world are discussing this question, even they are aware of COP27 and are actually looking to it to see if something will be done?
3: Yes, yes. I was fascinated. Like, they're following the news. They know about it very well. Some of them are obviously cynical but a lot of them is following it, and they hope that it's uh, going to affect their lives and it's going to avail funds that they need they urgently need to save their lands and save the, the and feed them basically feed their kids
1: If you look down the road five years or ten years from now, um what will happen to agriculture uh, if nothing is done to kind of slow the pace of climate change on uh, the nile
3: so uh, again, the problem in Egypt is that the countries is very dependent on the Nile River and um, the the farming and irrigation is about 90% of its fresh water comes from the river uh, rather than the rainfall as the case in other countries. So this is now contributing to making Egypt even more vulnerable to climate change due to its primary uh, dependence on the Nile and that's affecting everything. Yields for, co- for food crops are projected to decline uh, due to higher temperature and water stress and increased salinity of irrigation water, which means more exports, which means more pressure on the country's finances and budgets.
1: Selma, thanks so much for taking the
3: time to talk to me. Sure, thank you.
1: After the break, My conversation with Laura Milan continues, and we're going to explore some possible solutions to the climate crisis.
0: The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state
1: Laura, so we were just listening to some people in Egypt who are suffering the effects of what's happening from climate change right now, seeing what's happening when the Nile is greatly affected and makes it harder to plant crops and just harder to go about daily life. When you look at what's happening in a country like Egypt, which is not a big contributor to climate change, but is suffering the results from other nations, really— What are we seeing in the COP climate conference world among these uh, people who study this all the time about the responsibility of larger nations to smaller nations to try to reduce the effects?
2: Well, that's actually going to be one of the main themes at COP27 conference this year, partly because, like you say, it's a big issue, but also because the conference is happening in Africa for the first time in a few years. And that always means that these sort of issues have a bigger presence. What's happening and what the debate is about is that developing nations have not emitted historically as many emissions, nearly as many emissions as developed nations, as rich nations. So they have contributed comparatively very little to the warming of the planet, And yet they're bearing the consequences of that warming disproportionately. These countries are seeking compensation from richer nations and help when it comes to facing these terrible consequences.
1: Will those nations actually pay up? Because there was supposed to be a big payout from richer nations to less wealthy nations for exactly this purpose. And they kind of never paid, right?
2: I think what you're referring to is the uh, promise of $100 billion per year of climate finance to the developing nations and that pledge that was signed at the COP in Copenhagen has never been fulfilled. Developing countries are asking that that is fulfilled. That is a starting point, but actually calculations from experts and scientists say that developing nations actually need much more money to recover from these extreme weather events that, that are suffering because of climate change. It is unlikely that developed nations come out of this COP happy. Hopefully some sort of agreement, some sort of mechanism will be agreed upon.
1: And what are some of those things? I mean, you talked about mechanisms that they can put in place. What would they be that developing nations would get from the more developed countries?
2: More than a round figure, what uh, developing nations would be looking for this time is what they call a mechanism. So that means a system by which every time there is an extreme weather event that hits a country, let's say Pakistan, for example, which has terrible slots, then there is a system by which funding can flow very quickly into the country because it's been studies say that the faster you react to one of these extreme weather events, the faster you can recover from it.
1: Well, kind of like we were talking before that, um, you know, climate is in the forefront until immediate concerns wind up superseding them. There's always this kind of tension there between trying to ultimately save the planet from overheating and trying to keep immediate economic pain from hurting people. And so if you have very high prices for fuel and you have inflation everywhere and people are having a hard time, politicians uh, around the world are saying, well, I don't know, maybe just temporarily we're going to go back to using coal. We're seeing that certainly in China. We're even seeing some politicians in the U.S. saying, no, this is not the time to be talking about renewable fuels. We need to get people back to work and be able to, you know, heat homes. So at what point do you think there's going to be the feeling that when there's a crisis like the one we're in now— politicians say, no, this is the time where we have to say, we're going to take our pain right now in order to invest in clean energy that'll get us through it from now on.
2: I think we've already seen this with the coronavirus crisis. So in Europe, all the lockdowns forced governments to basically spend lots of money to try to revive the economy, and they passed huge economic packages. And the European Union made very clear that it wasn't growth or climate It was growth through fighting climate change. What they made was uh, all countries to commit to spending at least a third of European recovery funds in green policies. I think in a way, countries and and regions are still keeping climate change in mind when it comes to this recovery, to, to this economic crisis. The message is that, yes, there is a turn to coal in some countries to uh, cover these immediate needs. But over the long term, the hope is that the path toward a uh, low emissions economy and toward net zero by mid-century continues.
1: Are there countries in the world that exert more pressure more effectively than others on uh, countries to meet these more ambitious goals?
2: Yes, absolutely. So when we talk about the talks at COP, traditionally the US has been, obviously, as, as the world's biggest economy and as the world's also the world's biggest emitter, they have had huge weight in these talks. And this changed a bit during uh, former President Trump's mandate because he had a very different vision on climate. But the U.S. has come back as a leader of these negotiations under President Biden. And we expect them to send a huge delegation to COP27, putting pressure on other nations to cut coal use specifically, but also to cut greenhouse gas emissions in general. Other key players are the European Union as well. Another interesting player this year will be Australia. Australia, which changed governments in the middle of the year. Other players to watch that are not the typical ones on when we talk about international discussions are the small island nations. So these are really truly at the forefront. That you know they're battling climate change physically at their homes uh, every day. And we're talking about islands uh, like Barbados and other um, nations in in the Pacific and in the Caribbean. Leaders from these nations have traditionally been really really vocal in this forum, and they have compared to the relative size of their economies and their countries, they have a huge weight in these negotiations.
1: Is there a point of no return that the people who think about this, study it, attend these conferences, have in mind where if we don't do something about it, it's just going to be too late?
2: This is an ongoing debate among scientists. Some scientists will say that we've already reached that point of no return and that all that we are doing now is just avoiding catastrophe. There are people that will say, well, this is true, but still not all is lost. There is time to make things not that bad. I personally would like to focus on this glass half full view.
1: Laura, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Thanks for listening to us here at The Big Take. It's a daily podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartRadio. For more shows from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Read today's story and subscribe to our daily newsletter at Bloomberg.com slash Big Take. And we'd love to hear from you. Email us with questions or comments to Big Take at Bloomberg.net. The supervising producer of The Big Take is Vicki Bergolina. Our senior producer is Catherine Fink. Our producer is Federica Romaniello. Our associate producer is Zenib Siddiqui. Hilda Garcia is our engineer. Original music by Leo Sidrin. If you want to hear more about what's going on at COP27, check out our sister podcast. It's called Zero. They're heading to Egypt and they'll be reporting all the latest from the conference. I'm Wes Kosova. We'll be back tomorrow with another big take.